Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrell and Lisa Abramowitz. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg Terminal. The perfect conversation now. Mike McKee, as always, one of the best in the world, the best at following this Fed, sitting down with the St. Louis Fed President, Jim Bullard. Mike, good morning to you, buddy. Good morning to you, John, and good morning to you, Jim Bullard. Thank you for joining us on Bloomberg Radio and TV. Thank you. Thanks for coming out to our new museum here. Yeah, this is the, the Money Museum. It's uh, fascinating. And if you're in St. Louis, you should come visit it. We're sitting right next to the sign that talks about hyperinflation. So it's, <laughs> it's, it's sort of a perfect spot for us here this morning. A week ago, you were the lonely dissenter looking for a 50 basis point rate increase. Now, uh, the chair has all but promised a 50 basis point increase. At least that's the way the markets are taking it at the May meeting. What happened in the last week? Uh, I think, uh, I mean, those that are interested can read my dissent statement, which was out last Friday and is on our webpage. Uh, I think the Fed needs to uh, move aggressively to keep inflation under control. Our policy as we sit here today is still a very large balance sheet and very, very low policy rate. We need to get to neutral at least so that we're not putting upward pressure on inflation during this period when we have uh, much higher inflation than we're used to in the U.S. economy. Well, when you say we have to get to neutral, how quickly? You have been arguing for more than uh, 200 basis points. Yeah, I think uh, faster is better, and I think the 1994 tightening cycle uh, or removal of accommodation cycle is probably the, the best uh, analogy here. That one was quite successful. Uh, the Fed moved 300 basis points in a single year and then made some adjustments afterwards in 1995. Uh, the result was that we hit our 2% inflation target over the next 10 years. Uh, the economy boomed in the second half of the 1990s. So I think this is a situation that's like that. Uh, we came out of the pandemic, it got surprised by inflation, but now what you have to do is move the policy rate up discreetly a fair amount, uh, not to be too disruptive, but I think 50 basis point moves would definitely be in the mix. And, uh, and then get to a level that we can be neutral. And then from there, we can decide if we wanna be uh, restrictive uh, in put further downward pressure on inflation. But right now we're putting upward pressure on inflation. It's the wrong place to be given where inflation is. Well, as I noted, uh, the markets, whether you look at swaps or futures, are now pricing in 50 for May 4th. Uh, the Fed doesn't like to surprise the markets. Should we assume that that's what you're gonna do? Well, I, you know, I can't, I'm just one person on the committee. I don't know where uh, the rest of the uh, committee will be, and the chair has to manage that process. Um, I thought that was a, a good speech yesterday that laid out the situation, and we'll see where we are when we get to May 4th. Now, the uh, economic data have been closely watched, but from what you're saying, it doesn't sound like it really matters between now and May, that we're too low in terms of the Fed funds rate and inflation is too high, and those are the only two considerations. Well, that's the big picture, and I think that's right, that uh, we don't really need a lot of uh, more data here, but you never know in this world and in this business, you can always get surprised. Obviously, we've got geopolitical risk out there, I guess my feeling on that is that um, 
you know, we can't wait for that to get resolved. This could go on for a very long time, uh, and certainly geopolitical tensions, even if the war ended tomorrow, the tensions would last for a long time. So I think the best contribution we can make is to get our house in order and make sure that the U.S. economy is doing as well as we can uh, achieve, and uh, that will uh, be the best that we can do to contribute to the global situation. Without going all... Um our star on everybody. Uh, the idea of neutral is a moving target. Uh, different people think of different levels. Um, one analyst summed up your uh, policy right now as the Fed is going to keep hiking until something breaks. Is that the best way to think about it? No, that's not a good way to think about it. We're going to go to neutral, uh, which is the place where we're not putting upward pressure on inflation. I, you don't want to put upward pressure on inflation when you've got headline CPI, you know, close to 8% here and probably more to come in the, in the inflation reports ahead. So uh, we want to get to neutral so that we're not putting upward pressure and probably get to a restrictive policy so we're putting some downward pressure. History tells us that the faster we move to that, situation, the better chance we'll have of uh, moving inflation back to target and getting a boom in the U.S. economy to boot. Well, what's neutral to you? Uh, on the funds rate, uh, I've got 2%. That's because my R star is lower than others. Uh, I'm willing to go with a zero R star, so that's lower than other estimates that are out there. So I'd be uh, 200 basis points on the funds rate, but I'd want to go to 300 this year to get mildly restrictive, uh, and then that'll help us turn inflation around, and hopefully we'll also get some uh, moderation in inflation from other sources. What you worry about is inflation psychology getting embedded in the economy. What are people in your district CEOs telling you about uh, shortages, uh, supply chain problems, and uh, about uh, what they're uh, able to charge, uh, pricing power? <clears throat> well, most disturbingly, they're telling me uh, uh, that pricing power is not a problem, that they're able to raise prices and, and pass on the higher costs to their customers. So that's the, exactly the kind of situation that you don't want. You want them to be more worried about losing market share when they raise prices. And so for that dynamic has been worrisome to me, and that's something I think we need to get under control. I think a discrete adjustment to uh, the policy rate would help uh, break the inflation psychology and help uh, keep inflation under control in that sense. Uh, they're also <clears throat> saying a great deal about uh, supply chain issues and how those are going to continue and they will probably not get resolved uh, anytime soon. Uh, we may have to wait out into 2023. That's way too long for this policy process, so I don't think we can just wait for that to happen. What about the balance sheet? What's your best guess as to the best course for reducing uh, the balance sheet, and, and what effect would it have on interest rates? Yeah, I, I said in my dissent statement that I'd be happy to just get started on the balance sheet runoff uh, now. I think we overstayed our welcome on purchases. You know, uh, it's always hard to make these judgments, but in retrospect, looks like we allowed the balance sheet expansion to go on too long. So uh, I, I'm be happy with uh, sooner is better. Uh, I would have been happy to do it at this meeting, this previous meeting last week. Uh, I see no reason to just not to just get going on that process. Uh, we've got a long ways to go on that dimension as well. Uh, the balance sheet approaching nine trillion, you know, pre-pandemic it was four trillion. So you've got 
a lot of uh, a lot of uh, balance sheet reduction that can go on. Uh, it would be passive runoff. Uh, before we let you go, how would you advise people to look at the summary of economic projections and make sense of it, given that it says interest rates are going to rise to be restrictive and inflation's going to just drop off over the next three years, but unemployment's not going to move at all? Well, the real economy is doing very well. The uh, U.S. economy, even with geopolitical risk, is expected to grow at above-trend pace this year, next year, even the year after that in a lot of forecasts. So um, that's going to continue to put downward pressure on the unemployment rate and continue to have um, an even stronger labor market. Um, if you look at the Kansas City Fed's Labor Market Conditions Index, it's almost at an all-time high here. Uh, it probably is going to go to an all-time high. So one of the best labor markets in a generation. So I, I just think that, uh, that you know, the real side of the economy with continued reopening uh, following as the pandemic continues to fade here, uh, I think there's a lot of reasons to think that we'll have a, a robust economy going forward, and that suggests robust labor markets uh, going forward. So what we have to do is adjust the policy rate discreetly, get to the right level, then we can make adjustments from there. And you can get a soft landing? I think so. Jim Bullard. We did in 1984. We're going to do it again. <laughs> Jim Bullard, <laughs> president of the St. Louis Fed, thank you very much for joining us this morning. TK's missing out today. Can we say that? Do you agree? Yeah. Tom Keane's missing always. out in a major way. When this invasion started a month ago, Tom wanted one person on the show. And it's our next guest and Tom's not here. And if Tom was here, the introduction for our next guest would be about 30 minutes long for good reason. Angela Stent joins us now, the non-resident senior fellow at the Brookings Institution and the author of Putin's World, Russia Against the West and With the Rest. Angela, let's start here. There is this Western-centric conversation that there is some instability building in the Russian government, that we could have regime change, that Putin could fall. Can you give me your line of thinking on what's happening within Russia? Yes, I think many of us are clutching at straws and there's wishful thinking here. I mean, what do we know? There are some rumors that some high-level intelligence people have either been arrested or fired uh, and blamed for, obviously, the failure of intelligence at the beginning of that war. But these are just snippets. We know that there have been demonstrations against the war, uh, that thousands of people, I think at least 10,000 people, have been arrested. Uh, they can face up to 15 years in prison uh, for their protests. We know that 200,000 Russians approximately have left since the beginning of the war, and they've gone to Europe, other parts of the former Soviet Union. But we really don't have any proof that in Putin's inner circle, uh, there is any plot afoot. And it really would have to be his inner circle. He's very much in a bubble. He doesn't see very many people. Yes, some of the uh, oligarchs have obviously complained about what's happened to them. Uh, and uh, they, uh, they've lost their yachts and their homes. We know that. And we heard rumors that the head of the central bank, Elvira Mabiulina, uh, wanted to resign, but she's still in her post. So I think we have to be very cautious about assuming that a palace coup is underway. At the moment, Putin appears to be firmly in the saddle. Uh, he's obviously isolated. He's lashing out verbally, uh, as we saw. But when we saw this big rally uh, last Friday that he had in the stadium there, celebrating the anniversary of the annexation of Crimea, 
uh, he seemed to be very much in charge. Angela, when it comes to lashing out, how much are we going to see an escalation in the types of weapons used in some of the methodologies that Putin opts for in light of just what you talk about, the fact that he is cornered and isolated? Well, we're seeing, obviously, the bombardment of cities. We're seeing a, a humanitarian catastrophe. There is, you know, our government is warning that the Russians may use chemical weapons. Uh, they've been warning that for at least, I think, a week. And, of course, Putin has made veiled hints about the potential use of nuclear weapons or a tactical nuclear weapon. So I think we do have to watch out. If you go back to the Syrian playbook, uh, the way that the Russians behaved there with the indiscriminate bombing, the raising to the ground of the city of Aleppo and the use of some chemical uh, weapons, we just we, we do have to watch out for that. And that, of course, is a major concern going forward. Angela, it's been suggested by the Biden administration, as well as others, that Putin's ultimate ambition does not end with Ukraine. What he would really like to see is a return to the Soviet Union in some sense. If that is true, what does that mean about the likelihood of a lasting peace agreement or at the very least an agreement at all? So you might get an agreement to end this war eventually. Um, we know, you know, it would clearly involve Ukrainian neutrality. The question is, what about Crimea and the, and the Donbass, the southeastern Ukraine region? Uh, that's a possibility. We're not nearly there yet. Uh, but beyond that, if the Russians manage somehow to prevail, yes, Putin's ambitions go beyond Ukraine. Uh, he's talked about uh, a new Slavic Union state comprised of Russia, Belarus and Ukraine. That's a possibility. Um, but he's also hinted that Russia has its sights even further west, that it wants to reestablish a sphere of influence, not only in the post-Soviet space, but maybe in Central and Eastern Europe, too. So I think the likelihood of a lasting peace agreement, this is really quite far off. And we really then we'd have to have all the parties sitting down, as Mr. Popescu said, and, and rethinking Euro-Atlantic security going forward. And that's a major task. Angela, that title of your book, Putin's World, Russia Against the West with the Rest. Can we talk about the rest? When we think about the rest mm -hmm. now, increasingly we just think about China. And I wonder if the rest wants to be with Putin for much longer here. Do you think, A, that China will back away from its relationship with Russia because of developments on the ground? And B, do you actually believe that Vladimir Putin would listen to Xi Jinping if President Xi tried to intervene? I don't think China's going to back away from its relationship with Russia. I think China's in a difficult position because obviously Putin wouldn't have gone ahead and done this had he not thought that he had Chinese support. But Xi Jinping has cultivated this relationship with Vladimir Putin. I mean, it's a mutual cultivation. And they see each other both as authoritarian leaders determined to push back uh, against a world order that was imposed by the United States and its allies. So uh, I, think, I think we should not expect China to back away from backing Russia. But of course, Chinese major banks now are apparently complying with some of the sanctions. It'll, it'll be tricky for the Chinese uh, to avoid having a major economic problem with the West because of the sanctions. Uh, but I think they will remain uh, backers of Russia, even though they repeat that they believe in the territorial integrity and sovereignty of Ukraine. India is another country to watch. The Indians have not criticized the Russians. They're not going along with the sanctions. They have their own issues with China. Uh, they have a huge arms relationship with Russia. Uh, and then you have African countries, South Africa. Uh, you have countries in the Middle East, in Latin America. So we have to remember that the West is united in its condemnation of Russia and its horror 
uh, about this war, but much of the rest of the world isn't because it also has a much more skeptical view of the United States. Angela, we are so lucky to catch up with you today. Come back soon, please. Angela Stender of the Brookings Institution and, of course, Lisa, well-known author. Let's get to Francisco Blanche, the head of global commodities and derivatives research at B of A Global Research. And Francisco, let me throw this one out there. The Alame. How much credibility has the Alame lost in the last few weeks? Hey, uh, hey, John. Well, it's uh, it's been a messy process, that's for sure. Um, but uh, one of the advantages of, of having multiple exchanges uh, around the world is that we've uh, continued to see a live price for nickel in Shanghai. So uh, even though we've we've had some disruptions in trading for several days, uh, I think at least there's been a reference out there that people could track, uh, and and that's been a positive, I think, compared to to private prior uh, prior crisis. Francisco, how much more do we have to see of these clearinghouses getting disrupted, or even the consequence of them increasing their margin requirements in order to avoid some sort of disruption like that, leading to lower liquidity? Well, as, uh, as, as you know, since the financial crisis, we've been concentrating a lot of the risk on on exchanges, um, and um, and obviously that's that's I think partly creating some of the problems, but also remember as as volatility in commodity markets goes up to unprecedented levels, uh, it it really is hard to avoid bringing up those margin calls, or, or bringing up those margins in 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 the commodities that people trade because uh, the risk is just simply a lot higher, and we've seen that with nickel, we've seen that with other commodity markets, and uh, I, I even think that so. Some of the weakness we saw in oil uh, in the last uh, week and a half or so was related to the liquidation of, of uh, long positions linked to increased margin calls. And, and of course, as you probably know, open interest has actually fallen in oil despite the uh, incredible risks that we are running here with the war in, in, in the Ukraine still unfolding and, and still at a, you know, at, a, at, a, at a crucial point, I would say. Amrita's side of energy aspects actually pointed to that phenomenon as a reason why oil prices are so low, not so high. And she actually thinks that Brent could get up to 150. I think you agree with her that by June we could see Brent get up to 150, but then quickly fall back down. Do you still uh, believe that it will quickly fall back down based on the fact that a lot of people expect a prolonged conflict and prolonged consequences in the commodity markets? Well, so so uh, our, our scenario uh, since October of last year was uh, a spike to $120 a barrel by the summer. And, and we, we had that view based on a, a post-COVID demand recovery on limits uh, to how much OPEC can produce, on limits to how much shale is likely to respond, and of course inventories, which, which are still very low. I think what the Ukraine uh, crisis has done is probably lifted the entire uh, expectation by at least $25 to $30 a barrel. So we, we actually do have a $150 target for the summer in our baseline scenario and an average of $110 for the year. Um, it could still get worse, right? I mean, I, I don't want to sugarcoat this. It, it's a very bad situation, and uh, uh, Europe could still opt to restrict uh, Russian oil purchases, in which case we would see meaningfully higher prices. That's what we call our ugly scenario, is where, where Russian supplies not only get disrupted by a million or a million and a half barrels a day, but up to four million barrels a day in, in a market, of course, of 100 million barrels, where Russia actually supplies about eight uh, to, to the global uh, to, 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 to that global market. So, 
Um, so things are, are, are not great and could still get a lot worse. Um, and uh, and actually, if you look at the petroleum product markets, uh, we've seen diesel prices already surpassing uh, the, the the high points uh, that we saw back in 2000 and, uh, 2008. Mm-hmm. So it's not just crude oil itself, it's also some of the petroleum products. And again, diesel is, is, is the basis of the economy, is the basis of everything we do from, from harvesting to industry. And diesel is connected to jet fuel, which is obviously flying, but also trucking. So, so really the, the backbone of the economy is being very impacted by these ex- exceptionally high fuel prices. It, it's, it's the new fangs, you know, it's, it's fuel, <laughs> agriculture, aerospace. Um, it, it's also nuclear and renewables and, of course, uh, gold and, and critical metals. Um, so so it, it's all of that that's kind of come back into the fore with, um, with the crisis. So, Francisco, you mentioned there an ugly scenario. In the ugly scenario, what does that equate to in terms of a dollar figure on a barrel of crude? How is that different from your base case of 150 by summer? Uh, our, our ugly scenario is $200 a barrel plus, and, uh, and and the way we get there, again, is, is pretty simple, right? I mean, if you think about uh, every million barrels a day of disruptions from Russia equates to $20 to $25 a barrel on the price. So uh, if we get to, you know, we go from a million plus to, uh, to, to 4 million or so, we, we have to add 60 to $70 a barrel to, to our, our, our baseline spike scenario. Um, and um, and as I said, I mean, I I, I think that's been has been so difficult to impose uh, restrictions on Russian exports, because at the end of the day, when you when you sanction uh, a commodity uh, of a very large producer, uh, you're ultimately going to end up paying a higher price as as a large importer. And of course, the European Union is uh, is uh, one of the world's largest importers together with China. Mm-hmm. So so restricting the supplies of, of energy from your largest supplier, which again, Russia supplies right. um, a third of, of Europe's oil and 40% of Europe's gas, uh, essentially would just significantly elevate energy prices, which are already at record levels. So that's why I think there's been a lot of okay. um, political debate there. Well, Francisco, let's talk about other sources of supply, though. What assumptions are you making about potentially more capacity coming online from OPEC Plus or from the shale patch? Well, from, from OPEC Plus, it, it obviously, uh, I think the, the, the big, uh, uh, I think the, the, the big potential supply additions could come from Saudi Arabia or from, uh, from the Emirates, uh, United Arab Emirates. We've, uh, we've also seen some progress being made on the Iran nuclear deal, which could, uh, also provide some relief. If you put together all of those, uh, there could be up to, let's say up to 3 million barrels a day of incremental supply. I'm talking about Iran, Saudi Arabia and Emirates, uh, trying to max out production. The issue is of course, uh, with the very low inventory levels that we have, uh, if we max out production, then there's really no room for error. We are kind of keeping our fingers crossed that uh, no missiles from Yemen end yeah. up impacting Saudi export facilities or, or or that the situation in Libya doesn't worsen or that, God forbid, we see another uh, string of, of supply disruptions elsewhere around the world. So so that that's where the challenge is. Remember, energy security has taken the, the really uh, pretty much the, 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 the headlines here. And I think... Um, when you think, when you look at ESG versus uh, energy security, we've seen a, a much, much bigger focus on energy security because security is like oxygen, right? Energy security is oxygen to the economy in the same way that that, that security and national security is oxygen to to all of us. Because you don't think about it much, but once you don't have it, you start to lose it. 
Uh, that's the only thing you can think about, and and um, and that's really the, the I think at, at the heart of all the debates we are seeing in the political uh, sphere, and um, and I think all the warnings that have come from from uh, people like 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 me, you know, the analysts saying, well, you know, there's there's pros and cons. If if you end up pushing too hard on on, on the restriction side, you could also end up with with a very bad economic outcome. Well, Francesco, and let I me think pick up on that. Balance. Just finally, because the policy change right. we could see from this energy transition, there was almost a disregard for fossil fuels over the last right. few years, particularly at the beginning of this administration. Do you think it will change things on the policy front over the next several years, not just this year? Look, I've been making the case that uh, that the U.S. Uh, would go from from energy independence uh, to energy dominance, and and energy independence. We made the case ten years ago when shale started to to emerge as as, as a new and, and feasible technology. We saw an enormous amount of supply growth, and we thought the U.S. was going to become independent. Now we think it's going to become dominant, and and regardless of policy, remember uh, markets in, in in the U.S. Are, are very very powerful forces, and uh, with this kind of prices, we're going to see a lot more. Liquid natural gas exports out of the U.S. Even even um, uh, Secretary Kerry, uh, former Secretary Kerry, has actually agreed. Uh, you know, agreed that natural gas is is now critical to the energy transition. So we're going to see more of that. We're going to see more petroleum product exports. We're going to see more chemicals exports, more fertilizer exports. Just the U.S. is going to is going to really grow dramatically its energy production base as the rest of the world is is facing the shortages. Remember. Uh, the U.S. natural gas price is still $5 an MBTU, under $5 an MBTU. So yep. um, that, that's about $30 a barrel of oil equivalent. So America has not only the, the cheapest energy on the planet, but also the safest, John, uh, Jonathan. And, and, and I think uh, I think that that's uh, these are two very good reasons to uh, to up investments in the in the energy space in the U.S. And I think we'll see that. Even I think President Biden mentioned himself that that, uh, that there's a lot of leases out there that, that can still be drilled. And, and I think they will. I think we'll see a, a turn as, as a particularly a situation between the uh, between Russia and the Ukraine becomes more entrenched and, and, and presumably uh, U.S. sanctions, U.K. sanctions, potentially European sanctions could be there for years. Uh, potentially degrading as well the the uh, profile of, of commodity production for Russia, which which as you all know is is the world's number one commodity producer on, on many fronts. In a big so, way, we've learned that the yeah, hard way, way this time so, around, Francisco. So got to leave it there, sir. Francisco Blanche there of Bank of America. Joining us now is Joanne Feeney, partner and portfolio manager at Advisors Capital Management. I want to start here with you, Joanne, and just go to the price action of yesterday. Yields up, banks down. Can we start there, Joanne? Why? Yeah, sure. Good morning, Jonathan and team. Um, you know, clearly the market is adjusting their expectations for bank earnings based on a flatter yield curve. Um, but people have to remember that a lot of the source of, of loanable funds for banks does come from checking accounts, demand deposits, on which they pay no interest. So any increase in interest rates is going to be a positive for net interest margins. Obviously, it'd be better with this deeper yield curve. Um, and then I think the second thing is the concern over the growing risk of recession, uh, which could impact the you know, amount of loans that they make. So lower loan volumes would also tend to reduce their earnings. But I think overall, uh, banks have a pretty positive outlook here. You know, given what the Fed is saying, it still looks like we're going to have growing production growing loans, we're still in a reopening recovery, even if it's a bit slower uh, than we originally expected, given what's going on with commodities um, because of the Russia uh, war in Ukraine. Bonds are, uh, meanwhile, Joanne, pricing in a bit of recession risk. 
Are we seeing the same sort of pricing in in equity markets if you look below the surface? You know, I think what we're seeing in the equity markets reflects the change in interest rate expectations that began last November. Uh, when the Fed signaled that it was going to start raising rates, we saw these multiples come down really dramatically. And we saw this big reallocation among large institutional money managers, retail investors, et cetera, away from tech and high multiple stocks towards more cyclical stocks, more consumer staples as well. And I think that reallocation, I think we're seeing action in the market that suggests that reallocation might be over. And if investors want to get some exposure to growth, given a slowing aggregate economy, I think they're going to have to come back to those strong secular growth companies, you know, whether it's company exposed to the server market, data centers, et cetera. So I, I think that is really what we've seen in the equity markets has been a big reallocation, plus, you know, the expectation that growth overall is going to slow down. Joanne, do you lean into that or do you think that equities right now are not listening to the message being sent by bonds? Yeah, I think, you know, it's always the case that the bond market's going to look a little bit more closely at the recession risk. But, you know, one thing to be aware of is where else are investors going to go? Uh, equities is really the only game in town in terms of building some source of appreciation. And if you're a long-term investor, uh, as, as our clients are, I think you can ride out this volatility. But, but be, you know, let's make no mistake. It's going to be volatile for a while, given these geopolitical risks. But the equity market, I think, still holds now lots of opportunities for investors with a long-term view to get some exposure to secular growth, even if the economy slows down. You know, even in a recession, there are ways to build in some insurance against some of these risks that we're seeing now, whether it's defense names, cybersecurity, energy. There are a lot of ways to build insurance into portfolios in this kind of environment. So, Joanne, what you're saying kind of echoes what our colleague John Authors wrote in his Bloomberg Opinion piece today that is essentially, yes, higher yields in theory can threaten equities, especially those that command higher multiples. But at the end of the day, a more aggressive Fed is going to be worse for bonds than it is for stocks. Is that essentially the thesis you subscribe to? Yeah, I think that's a fair statement. And I think we have to put the interest rates into perspective. Um, first of all, interest rates at two and a half, three percent is still incredibly low. Historically, it's still a relatively cheap source of funds. And remember, corporations tend to borrow longer term. So they're looking more at the 10-year and the 30-year. And those seem to be anchored by Fed credibility. And clearly, the market does expect inflation to come down. And that's why we're not seeing such a buildup in rates at the longer end of the curve. And also, we have so much demand for the 10-year globally because it's the safe harbor, because you know pension funds have to be there. Uh, central banks are going to be there. So I think that helps to anchor the long-term cost for corporations, which does suggest more investments, more expansion. Job openings are still at record highs. And so I think we're still going to see expansion on the production side of the economy, even while we see some constraints on consumer spend. Joanne Feeney, always fantastic to catch up with you of Advisors Capital Management. David Rubenstein, we are so lucky, uh, is here with us. As markets grapple with the conflict in Ukraine, a big question has been why things have been so sanguine, if incredibly volatile. What was Ken's response to just this incredible willingness to look past some of the conflict and continue to buy? Well, Ken has built one of the greatest hedge funds in our country's history and also now has built a great 
uh, trading operation, Citadel Securities. And in those kind of situations, you have to know what the geopolitical forces are going to be and what they're likely to do in terms of their impact on the markets. So he has a team of people that are looking at this situation, but nobody really knows right now exactly what's going to happen. But he's obviously worried about it because it'll impact markets and affect his trading and it also affect his Citadel Securities business. Ken has had more impact uh, than almost any major financial person on the markets in the last number of years because Citadel Securities has become one of the biggest market makers in the country. And also, his uh, hedge fund has done spectacularly well, probably the, most, the second most profitable hedge fund in our country's history. And this has caught a lot of people's attention, especially as he consolidates a lot of equity trading uh, volumes within the Citadel Securities unit. How much do you talk about the need to keep a wall between these businesses, to keep them separate in both perception and actuality? Well, he does keep them separate because uh, they're obviously uh, potential conflicts, but he's obviously got it walled off and he has separate teams of people. Uh, they are owned by uh, about 50 people. His hedge fund is owned by about 50 people, including himself. And his um, Citadel Securities is owned by about 50 people, including himself. He's obviously the largest shareholder in each. But he also recently sold for Citadel Securities. He sold um, a piece of it, uh, 5%, uh, to Sequoia Securities, or to, to Sequoia, uh, uh, I should say, uh, uh, Venture Fund, and also to a Paradigm, which is a crypto company. And uh, he kind of hinted in the interview that now they'll probably begin in the not too distant future to make markets on crypto uh, currencies, which he hadn't done before. He's been a skeptic of crypto, yeah. crypto, and now he says he's less skeptical. Well, David, what caused that change of heart? Well, when markets move a certain way and you're a force of the markets, you recognize the markets are, are saying something that you didn't recognize was the case earlier. So he's now been a skeptic of crypto since its beginning, but now he's kind of said the market is now has $2 trillion of value in cryptocurrency. So if you're going to be a player in the in making markets for people, you can't afford to not be in that uh, crypto market. So what opportunities does that create for him and for Citadel more broadly? Well, crypto um, now has a, a gigantic following among people, and I think it's going to get bigger. And this is one of the reasons. What we've learned recently is that the governments can take away your assets pretty quickly. Now, everybody's not a Russian oligarch, but these Russian oligarchs thought they had all their money uh, hidden in various places or they can get apps uh, get any time anytime they wanted. And so did the Russian government. Russian government thought they could get its assets anytime. Now, we can see that governments can freeze and confiscate your assets. So many people are looking at this around the world and saying, wait a second, maybe I need to have some assets that the government can't get to or they're hidden or they're anonymous. And I suspect you'll see a lot of people in China and other places where they want to hide wealth uh, buying more and more cryptocurrency. So I think it's going to be a big growth business. It's one of the really important points that will be discussed. It is at 9 p.m. tonight. I look forward to looking at the full interview, David. But before we let you go, I do want to shift gears a little bit. We have been hearing from Fed officials. We heard from Fed Chair Jay Powell yesterday. Today, this morning, just moments ago, Jim Bullard of the St. Louis Fed coming out saying that he does think that we can achieve a soft landing even as the Fed moves to a more restrictive policy. Based on the on-the-ground experience that you have with the firms you're investing in, do you think that it is achievable? Well, nobody really knows, but I think the Fed has done a reasonably good job of recognizing now that interest rates probably need to go up. And the question is how much and how, how frequently. And I think the markets are now assuming about a six, uh, six different times this year we'll probably have rate increases, probably of 25 basis points each time. But it's not impossible there could be a 50 basis point increase at some point, depending on what the inflation numbers are. I do think the Fed has probably said uh, it may have missed the market a little bit. It maybe it could have been a little bit earlier and maybe a little bit stronger in fighting inflation. I think the, the word transitory is one that's now probably not going to be used again.
Well, and of course, they stuck to that for quite some time. How much credibility do you think the Fed has lost or still has here? The Fed has enormous credibility around the world because of what the Fed is. Uh, but the Fed, you know, is not perfect. And maybe they would say in hindsight or when the memoirs are written by people, they will say, well, maybe they could have acted a little bit sooner. But I don't think it's a gigantic problem. And they now are on the right path. So I think it's OK. That's at 9 p.m. David Rubenstein, we all look forward to watching every week. Thank you so much uh, for being with us. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Thanks for listening. Join us live weekdays from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio and on Bloomberg Television each day from 6 to 9 a.m. for insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. And subscribe to the Surveillance Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on The Terminal. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg.